Thank you for that prayer. I'm not Brett Helvey, and I will need many prayers for the mistakes that I'm going to make. I've already made one, by the way, in that I have broken the lapel mic, the earpiece that goes around, and so this will actually be my last time preaching at Grace. It is good to be with you this morning, and I'm thankful that Brett and Annetta have an opportunity to get away and spend some time with family. I'm also grateful for the opportunity, and I look forward this morning to what I'm going to say and how God is going to use that to hopefully help us this morning. I do want to take just a moment, and I want to thank this church for your graciousness, your generosity, your love for me and my family, my wife, Melissa, who has undergone her second hip surgery. She's kind of like the bionic woman. And you guys have really just been very generous and benevolent to us in meals and coffees and stopping by the house and texts and phone calls and really appreciate that during this time. She misses you and she's looking forward to being back over the course of the next few weeks. So I do want to thank you for that. We are very grateful for uh, your blessing us in that way. I will be in Galatians chapter 5 this morning, verses 13 through 26. And my topic this morning has to do with our relationship with the Holy Spirit. This, of course, is not a comprehensive message, but this will touch on a few things as it relates to our learning to be in sync with the Spirit in our lives. This is an exciting and a mysterious subject, but one that will hopefully enrich us and encourage us, as I believe we all are in need of further going, further walking, further progressing as it relates to the Holy Spirit. When I have failed to walk in my walk with Christ, it is always a failure to rely on His Holy Spirit. When I have succeeded in my walk with Christ, it is always a direct result of my relying on His Holy Spirit. We must be reminded that our intimacy with Christ, the path towards being conformed to His image, this process of loving God and loving neighbor, the issues of overcoming sin patterns that continue to plague many of us invariably pass through the path of the Spirit. Before we read our text this morning, I want to begin with just a few theological assumptions about the Holy Spirit before we get into our reading. First of all, the Holy Spirit, as you well know, is one of the three persons of the triune God. The Godhead is comprised of essentially, it is a, it is, he is one, but there is also a community of persons. There is this intimacy that is really being showcased between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't always get a whole lot of press, but it is the one that really should flow and really give the motivation and the energy and the power through which we do everything. It points to Jesus, of course, and so I want to remind us of some basic things, maybe not so basic to some others. Jesus, of course, the second thing, does nothing in his ministry or life outside of the Holy Spirit. We see that the Spirit 
is there at his baptism and it comes on him in a special way to set him apart for his ministry and all of the miracles and all of the teachings and even all of the difficulties that will take place. So nothing Jesus does is done outside of cooperation with the Spirit of God. The other thing I want to remind us is that we see in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit is still active. The Holy Spirit is regenerating people and bringing them to salvation. He's active in the life of His people. And there's all of these activities that the Holy Spirit comes on certain people at certain times and for certain purposes. But there is a way in which there is clearly a different manifestation of the Spirit that occurs with God's people after Jesus ascends. There's something different about that. And we see this, although not all at once, we see this done in phases and stages in the early life of the church, how that the Jews who believe on Jesus certainly have a different experience of the Spirit falling on them. And then we also see this later on with some of the Gentile believers that also occur. And so eventually the Apostle Paul in some of his writings, he actually makes clear to the church that one of the hallmarks of putting one's trust in Jesus Christ is actually the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Now some of this, again, some of you guys are looking at me like, yeah, duh, we know this, but we can't go forward without kind of laying some of these basic things down that are so important to understanding the Holy Spirit. Jesus also assures his disciples that I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going away, but I'm also still going to be here. And so I'm sure that it baffled the disciples. I'm sure that it was stunning to hear this, but he says, I'm going to send when I go to the father, I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send a comforter, a parakletos that is going to essentially come alongside and is going to help you and is going to point to Jesus and is going to show you all the things that I have taught you and is going to guide you as you go through your struggles. Jesus also promises his disciples that they will actually do greater works than he performed during his life. That must have really been a showstopper when he, when he shared that. You guys are going to do greater things than I've done. And as we think about that, we really look at the book of Acts, and Acts can kind of, sometimes it's framed as the Acts of the Apostles, and really it could be reframed as the Acts of the Holy Spirit, but the book of Acts is essentially, it is the framework through, the, through which this promise that he gives to his disciples is actually fulfilled. It's the beginning of what Jesus says, greater works you'll do. And just on the basis of quantity alone, that becomes true pretty soon in the history of the church. How is that possible? It is possible because of the spirit of Jesus doing the work through them. And so that's one of the things that I think we need to be reminded of. And then the final thing, and then we'll get into our text, is that Jesus' promise to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, gives the disciples not only their marching orders of disseminating the gospel to all nations on earth, but it actually explains the means by which they will be able to disseminate 
the gospel to all nations. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so that's a great promise that we are reminded of this morning. So with that in mind, I'd like for us to begin reading in Galatians chapter 5. And we're actually going to begin in verse 13 and we will read through verse 26. Paul says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this or those who practice this will not inherit the kingdom of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for this opportunity to look into your word. Father, we pause for just a moment and we invite your presence. We know that you are here, but we pray that you would make us aware of your presence. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. May there be a flexibility and a tenderness to, what, uh, to how we respond to your voice and to the word of God. And we just pray that you would uh, make your word clear. May I be a channel of understanding, not an obstacle to it. And I just ask that you would bless our time. May it draw us closer to an understanding of what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ and to walk in your spirit. We thank you for this. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little bit of background as we look at this text in Galatians. Galatia was a large Roman province that basically covers the mountain and the plain of what is modern-day Turkey. And in Acts 13 and 14, we actually hear about Paul going and founding some of the churches that are in this region that we're talking about, churches like Antioch and Lystra and Iconium. 
And he paid follow-up visits to these in the latter chapters of Acts. So the letter that we're looking at today was written to correct some serious issues in the church. Some of Paul's most convicting of statements we actually find in the book of Galatians because they had some big problems. And the main problem was concerning certain people in the church claiming that Gentile converts who were coming to know Christ needed to be circumcised and observe the Jewish law. That must have been a great business meeting in the church to try to pass that new ritual And I'm sure they were very excited about that. But this was a very controversial piece that they were trying to to pass down. And Paul's primary corrective is really to reestablish, first of all, his own authority or his own origin story as a follower of Jesus the Messiah. But he's also trying to remind them of his authority as one of the eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Jesus. And so he's actually pulling from that account to uh, try to underscore his authority to the church. He also is trying to solidify some of the foundational pieces of what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. In the book of Galatians, you will find really some of the most explicit and clearest statements about the gospel and what it is, and it's such a great book. And so then as he gets into chapter 5, he really goes on to explain that Christ has set us free. He has set us free from the demands of not only the specific right of circumcision, but he has really set us free from the demand of the entire law or the Torah. In fact, to seek to be made righteous through the keeping of the law actually reveals that we have not been justified by faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You say, I don't know that I believe that. Well, that's what Paul says, not me. So as we go through this, he makes that very clear. At the same time, he warns against the opposite extreme here of using our freedom as essentially an excuse to indulge our sin patterns or to indulge our flesh. He reminds us in verse 6, he says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He says to use their freedom to serve one another in love. In verses 13 and 14, Paul adapts Jesus' summary. You can hang the entire Torah on this word, which is to love one's neighbor as oneself. And so he doesn't include the part about loving God, but we know it flows from that. And so Paul is really summarizing that idea. So the symptoms of not loving one another were really playing out. And so there's all this division, which is why you see some of this colorful language about devouring one another and biting one another. One of the ancient writers described this concept as basically two snakes that were literally devouring one another. They were eating one another up. And so Paul pulls from that, and that's what he's talking about as he tries to really discourage them away from living in this way towards mutual destruction. So that brings us to verse 16, which is the start of our text. And in verse 16, where he says, I say then, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is a transition verse, but it is also a summary 
of what has occurred. And, and though the Spirit is mentioned throughout the letter, it's not really mentioned in the way that it's mentioned here. And so he's really saying a lot of the same stuff, but he's also saying something new. And I want us to get that connection as we go forward. He's talking about, uh, he's talking about in faith, and he's talking about our love and reliance on Jesus versus the demand of the law. And he says this, he says, live or walk by the Spirit. And so depending on the translation, the word is, is actually walk. And it's essentially this New Testament idiom, this pattern where you, all of your life, this is the way that you behave. This is the way that you live out on a daily uh, personal way. And so he's saying, I want you to live, I want you to walk in every moment of life by the Spirit. And so this morning, my sermon in a sentence is this. Live the life that God has given you by the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. That's it. Let's pray. I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> so why, why should we do this? Why should we do this? There's a few things I want to give you this morning as to why we live by the Spirit in this way. Why we walk in the Spirit. The first thing that we see in this text is so that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We see this in verses 16 and 17. The word for flesh here, it's a very common word that we're kind of used to, to hearing throughout the New Testament. And it can refer to a variety of things depending on the context. Sometimes it's used in reference to the human body. Sometimes it's used in reference to flesh, just meat. And sometimes it's used in... Paul's writings is very commonly used in reference to what I think here is like a sinful disposition or a selfish tendency or urge towards sin. And while some of what he's talking about certainly involves the body, I don't think that you can clearly just use the body as a synonym. There are some passages in Romans 7 where he talks about body and members of our body but I think that because some of the sins on the list are not physical sins, I don't think that it always makes sense to just say body. It certainly includes the body, but I think that's more of a Greek concept where the body is completely evil. We know that that's not true, but certainly part of that is the unredeemed part of us that is always leaning towards sin patterns and is always leaning towards those proclivities to sin and to go against what God has called us to be and to do. And so Paul says in Romans 7, 15 through 18, to sort of illustrate this idea or this struggle that we see here, he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, who does it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me 
that does it. You can make a footnote. There's probably no other passage in all of Scripture where there's so many do's. But essentially, you get the idea. As you're reading through that, you're probably thinking, I relate to that. I know what Paul is describing. I know what he's talking about. I know the struggle. I know the wrestling that he has. And so as we see that here, we know that our flesh is very active in our life. So what are the desires of the flesh? He says it here. He says, of live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. And so what are the desires of the flesh? They are that which is contrary. They are opposite to the Spirit. They are opposite to what God wants. So the Spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. There is this internal conflict that is going on inside of us that Paul just described in Romans 7, so that you do not do what you want. If there is no conflict, there's a problem. If there is no, if you get up in the morning and you have no problem sinning, that should be a red flag that something's wrong. That doesn't mean that you don't sin. I've probably sinned three times since I've been up here, but there is an ongoing struggle that we must be aware of that sin is something that it's a constant battle. And if there's no battle, if there's no wrestling, if there's no struggling, then we're not probably part of the group of people that Paul says you are the people of God. You are the people of put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Because one of the evidences that Paul makes very clear here is that there is this pull in the opposite direction. The flesh and the spirit are pulling against each other. And so sometimes as we go through this struggle, we feel differently. There's a battle. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I feel as if, man, I'm going, I'm on the path. I'm going to be like St. Francis of Assisi. I'm just going to be able to, to do all these wonderful things. And by noon, I feel more like of Charles Manson of, in my mind than I do St. Francis of Assisi. And that's probably just a couple of us in here. Of, just to clarify, I've never murdered anyone physically. There are no bodies that are hidden that you know of. But I'm letting you know there is a struggle, right? We start off in a certain way and by noon everything has become derailed. Why? Because there's a battle. There is a battle. And every day if you try to phone it in for an hour or for five minutes, you know that you're just already in a bad place. And so the Holy Spirit is, is this person inside of us that is causing this conflict with our flesh. And that's a good thing, because there is a battle. If you're ever not battling, then you're not in a good place with what he's saying. He also uh, says on here, and we'll look at uh, this list in just a second, that those who practice or continually do these things, and sometimes I even struggle with this wording, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so... 
I don't know exactly what that means other than to say those who practice these things continually, and I think what he's indicating is there's no battle. You're just doing it. You're just doing it and you're okay with doing it. That's not a good sign because that indicates that the Spirit of God is not inside of you. And again, we're taking this just from what Paul is saying here. And it's something we have to be very clear about. So let's get into the list for just a moment. We're not going to cover everything in the list here. We would be here all day. But basically there's 15 things on this list where it says the works of the flesh. And so we see this in verse 19. He gives this long list. And there's 15 things on the list. And there's some of these things that are overlapping types of sin. Some of them sound very similar. And so they are. And so I think a good way to divide this up, this is not original, uh, is to basically take four main categories of sin patterns. The first one is immorality. Uh, And so you see here sexual immorality. The word is pornea, from which we get our word for pornography. It is essentially all forms of sexual immorality. And so any type of illicit sex outside of the ordained confines of male and female marriage is is really what he's talking about here. And so that's really the first category, immorality of thought, attitude, action of in, in regards to one of those areas. Along with that, impurity, debauchery, you may have a different translation that goes along with that, but that's essentially the same idea of what we're talking about. So those are sexual sins. And so again, not just activities, but also the thought, the behavior, the attitude, the perspective that goes along with that. And so then he goes into the second group, which is very short list, but it's idolatry. And so essentially putting anything before God or before Christ. uh, And so then witchcraft or sorcery goes along with that, which again is a practical working out of that. And then we also see the third one, which is rivalry. There's pro- we'll go quickly through this because there's probably no one in here that has ever had hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, or envy. So we'll just run through that real quick. Um, but uh, maybe one or two of us have before uh, had rivalries. And uh, I don't mean Georgia and Alabama. I'm talking about bigger rivalries with one another and how, how essentially... Uh, we, we look towards one another, and this is more of a community thing, but this, is, this can be a problem. These are all things that flow from, from our selfish part of us, the unredeemed part of us, which is the flesh. And so as we read this list and go through this list, you know, it's not like I'm, you know, here at a Tupperware party and everybody's disinterested. I mean, you guys should be like, yep, that's, yep, yep, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. I mean, and, and that's not a good thing. It's just saying you're, you're familiar with how this works. You're familiar with how this looks. And then the final one and the final category of the works of the flesh is drunkenness. Uh, and so then along with revelries, which again... Of You know, this is just a category, but essentially he's talking about things that have to do with indulgence of drink. Uh, Certainly there are some things like drug abuse and uh, abuse of substances that could kind of flow from that. What I like about this list most of all is that Paul says, and the like. 
and things like this. And so as you're reading through the list and you're like, well, I'm glad my sin didn't make it. Paul says, well, things like this, even if it's not exactly like what's on this list, there are works of the flesh that you struggle with. This is not a comprehensive list. There are other sins that, uh, you know, you don't get a pass on because they're not here. They're just, this is just a fact. These are things that flow from that. So why should we walk in the Spirit? We should walk in the Spirit so that we do not fulfill, we do not live out, the, we do not gratify the desires and the tendencies that we have towards the flesh. That's the first thing. The second thing is so that we will not relapse to legalism. The second thing is so that we will not relapse to legalism. We see this in verse 18. It says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so in, in chapter 5, verse 1, so, so basically you're not under the yoke. You're not under the slavery of the law any longer. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It is very easy, and I don't know if you've noticed this in your tendency to follow Christ, but it is very easy, and especially for me, to build our life on an infrastructure of do's and don'ts. We've talked about this, and, and, and this, is not a, this is not discounting, by the way, anything that we've talked about with spiritual disciplines. But I think as Dallas Willard talks about in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, the disciplines are not a religious checklist that we try to get done, but it is really a way, a path, a means by which we open ourselves up where we are invited into this relationship and this of in syncness with the Holy Spirit that we desperately need. If you came here this morning, some of you, and I do this sometimes, this is not something that I'm just saying, but sometimes I come to church and I'm in the door and my brain says, okay, you made it. I'm done. And so I'm going to phone in the rest. I'm not going to be present. I'm, not, I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat. I'm thinking about what's going on next. I'm thinking about oh, all the things I have to do. I'm thinking about, hey, did somebody like my Facebook post? Hey, did this go on? And we're not present, and that's a problem. Because the spiritual disciplines are not for us to gain or earn any approval towards God that has already been done on the cross and through His resurrection. It's not to gain approval or approbation from any person. It is to open ourselves and to accept the invitation to be present where you are and to allow those things that are being done to bring you into the presence of God. That is such a struggle I know for many of us, myself included. We've got to embrace the truth that we are free but that freedom that we have in Christ is a freedom to love and to go and to grow. And this freedom should draw us to the beauty of the Spirit, not the ugliness of self-reform or self-effort. And so it's just a reminder again, you are not under the law. You are free being led by the Spirit. That's the second thing. The third thing is 
We must walk in the Spirit. Why? Because so that the Spirit can produce His fruit in our lives. So that the Spirit can produce His fruit in our lives. We again see this list in verse 22 and 23. Brett has been talking about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And really, this list of virtues that we see here is essentially those qualities of kingdom life. I mean, we see it over and over again how that you could take every one of these qualities of the Spirit and they are connected to that life that Jesus is describing as kingdom people in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And notice that a lot of times we will change this to fruits of the Spirit. It is singular fruit of the Spirit. This is a singular of aspect. And so it doesn't mean that you're going to have all traits at once. It just means that the fruit of the Spirit is an outworking of all of these things. And so they flow from the person of the Spirit. And so I don't, again, think this is an exhaustive list in the same way that the works of the flesh are not an exhaustive list. I don't think that this is an exhaustive list of traits that are good. But I want to remind you again that these virtues on this list, they serve as the antidote to all of the vices on the previous list. Think about it. As we went through that list of four categories, think about love. How love dispels so much of what is on that list. This is the chief quality. This is the greatest, Paul says, of the big three. This is the foundation. Love for God and love for neighbor. We also see peace on the list. Peace, not just the absence of conflict, but it is the possession of inner wholeness and our approach to becoming a peacemaker. We possess peace and then we make peace. And all of these things flow from the relationship with the Spirit. We also see on here patience or long-sufferingness, depending on the translation. Being able to withstand pressure gracefully in the midst of conflict. We also see on here of kindness. Couldn't we use some more kindness in our life? Isn't that one of the criticism a lot of times about the church is that we are so unkind and yet it flows it's one of the things that flows from this aspect of the spirit kindness so many examples of Jesus reaching out in tenderness to sinners who were broken we also see goodness that is very similar to kindness but there is this aspect maybe that leans more towards a generosity of heart a, a benevolence of spirit towards people we see faithfulness certainly this ultimately means loyalty or fidelity to God but it can certainly mean to one another in the body Paul actually specifically addresses this issue with the Galatian churches and essentially says you have not been loyal to me as a brother you have not been of faithful to me. And so there is this aspect of faithfulness that flows ultimately from God, but also entails all of His people. And then Paul actually talks about gentleness or meekness. And it is the idea of being able to be calm. Jesus, of course, was so meek. 
was so calm. We just looked at that this morning in Mark as they take him off to be killed. The meekness that he has in the midst of this never out of control of his, of his abilities. He's always in the midst of the spirit. And then we see of also this idea of self-control. We see the opposite of this, of course, in a pattern of drunkenness or drug abuse, but it certainly applies to a lot of areas. Self-control could apply to areas such as food, streaming services, social media, verbally spouting off. It goes on and on and on. That's just a few from my list. Your list may have some more. And so self-control in all of those different areas that we need. And he says, Paul says, against such things, again, things like these, not every things like these, he said, against such things, there is no law. There is no rule prohibiting these things. And there's actually no rule for these things. There's nothing that we can conjure up to do. Uh, it is not that these things are going to be done by some self-induced method. It's not that we can go to some seminar. It's not that we can go and practice certain things and these things will just immediately flow into our lives. They are the evidence of the Spirit working inside of us. This is really difficult for us to capture, but this does not flow from what we do. It flows from what God does in our heart and in our lives. As we walk, as we live by the Spirit, the Spirit works in us the work of His grace, and this work overflows. Let me give you the fourth and final thing. We walk by the Spirit so that we can live in reality who we truly are in Christ. We walk by the Spirit so that we can live in reality who we truly are in Christ. We see this in verse 24, he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. When we placed our trust in Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross for our sins, there is a sense in which our flesh, the unredeemed part of us, was put to death. Jesus died for us, but we also died in Him. And the old life of passions and desires were put to death on the cross. But there is, of course, still work to be done, or this list of the works of the flesh wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. This command to walk in the Spirit wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. So even though it is done in what Christ did on the cross, there is ongoing work to be done through the Holy Spirit and our cooperation with Him. So in verse 25, he indicates that since we live or since we have life by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So because we have life through Jesus' death and His resurrection and through the Spirit indwelling us, he says, now let us walk or really let us keep in step with the Spirit. We are able to experience new life in this way of putting to death our old life. And so as we look at this, how do we do this? So I want to remind us of a couple of things. So again, Christ's death on the cross makes all of this possible, but we have to experientially, practically put our old life to death. 
which is why Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. And as we do that, the Spirit of God, of which we'll talk about baptism this afternoon, it says we are buried in the likeness of His death. We are raised to walk in newness of life. That is only possible through the Spirit of God working in us. So some of you, if you're like me, you've been sitting here through this sermon, and you're like, got it, great, good. How do we do it? Give me several things that I can take away from this that I know how to walk in the Spirit. And that's the way I do. I sit in meetings, I sit in different things, and my brain runs ahead and says, okay, got it, tell me exactly how to do this logistically and methodologically so that I can accomplish what you just told me that I needed to do. So I'm going to frustrate most of you this morning by telling you that's not how this works. <laughs> that, that's, that's actually opposite of how this works. And, and it's been very disappointing because as I've actually prepared for this sermon, I kind of went into it thinking, okay, how do we do this? And as I got into it deeper and deeper and deeper, it was more about why than the how. And that was, that was a struggle for me because I'm more of a how guy. Okay, let me, let me, how do we do this? How do we put this into practice? And so that is the most mysterious and frustrating part of this text because there's just not a whole lot of information about how to do this. Even in Ephesians 5 when it tells us that, hey, be filled with the Spirit or be being filled. We're like, yes, be filled with the Spirit. We're like, okay. How do we do that? And so there's all this mystery surrounding this. Now, this is a command and there's a lot of truth about why we need to do it. But again, there's a couple of clues that I want to point out. I don't want to leave you completely out of the how. There's a couple of clues that let us know how we can tap into this that I'll leave you with. And so... I do want to say this for just a moment. I think it's important for us not to gloss over this. But think about what Paul has said for a moment. Think about what he has been telling the Galatian believers. What, he has, been, what has he been fighting for this entire letter to the Galatians? So, he's been talking about the purity of faith in Jesus alone versus the burdensome demand of the law. So think about that for just a moment. So, how logical is this? This is what Paul says. He says, a person is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? The law's purpose was to lead us to Christ, so you are now free in Christ. Therefore, by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. We now have life by the Spirit, so we are to walk in the Spirit. That's all that Paul says in the letter. I've taken it straight from the text that he speaks. How logical would it be for us to say all that? And Paul says, okay, here's five ways that you walk by the Spirit. 
Get away from the rules. Don't observe the law. You came it by listening. You came about it. Christ. The, the law points to Christ. So here's five methods, five rules, five disciplines that you need to do in order to do that. That make a whole lot of sense. So the conclusion this morning, I want to say a couple of things. So first of all, the pointers that we're going to talk about, they're highly relational. They're not programmatic. They're very highly relational. They are not programmatic. I'm going to highlight two in conclusion. First of all, we walk by the Spirit by recognizing that the path of the Spirit is nothing other than faith. It's faith. I don't have to read all the texts again, but we see this repeatedly that belief is the thing that unlocks the work of the Spirit the same way that faith unlocks our relationship with Jesus and the Father, it's all connected. John 6, they asked Jesus, what must we do to, work, to do the works that God required? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, believe in the one he has sent. Faith does not mean some ethereal feeling or some pie-in-the-sky mentality. It's not an absence of responsibility, but it is actually a conviction that God is true and it demands the surrender of my will to the actions that He commands. As we know, faith without works is dead, but works without faith are also devoid of life. Faith is the thing that produces within us the work. How does he do? How does it do that? It does it through the Spirit of God. So the trust component is absolutely paramount to this. It is the thing that produces the works, not the other way around. As we go to God in prayer, as we are in sync with God, it opens the gateway for this. Here's the second thing, and I'm almost done. We, we walk in the Spirit by realizing that the path of the Spirit is more of a dance than a march. It's more of a dance than a march. Verse 18 says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. We glossed over that quickly earlier. But if you are led by the Spirit, in order to be led, you must have a willingness to follow. You must have a willingness to listen to what the Spirit is saying and then have a willingness to move forward in whatever direction He goes. There's a moment-by-moment -moment aspect of this that invites us into an awareness of His presence and invites us into His movement. Some of you are going to struggle with different sides of this. Keeping in step for some of us is resisting the urge to move faster than the Spirit of God moves. And I'm not just talking about direction. I'm talking about patience and our anger. And I'm talking about sinful things. Some of us want to move faster than what God wants. Other of us really struggle with, we, we want to move slower than God wants. And depending where you are on that continuum of spirituality, you're going to struggle. But he says, keep in step. Don't walk ahead. Don't lag behind. Walk Keep in step with me every way I go, everywhere I direct, pressing ahead in obedience and submission to what He wants. This is not, again, just a matter of guidance, but of empowerment to overcome sin. So God, this morning, is calling us to cooperation with Himself. This life that God has graciously given to us as believers through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son 
And His Spirit is daily available to us through our making the choice to walk in His Spirit, to listen to Him through the leading of His Word, to listen to Him through the leading of His Word, through the body and community, through leaning into His presence in our lives and being cognizant of it. He is there. We must take the step to walk by His Spirit. The transformation in the life that is available to us is far greater than anything that we could ever imagine. We think of Philippians 2 where it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it's God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. The responsibility for walking is ours, but the power chain, the transformation that is available is His. And He does it so well. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful this morning for the opportunity to look in Your Word. I pray that You would continue to use this text and to use the voice of the Spirit in our lives to lead us in a good way to be more conformed to the image of His Son. There's so much more that we could have said or uh, said better, but Father, we just ask that You would use this in a way that will draw us closer to You. And so, Father, we thank You for this, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I have you stand this morning? And I'm going to read a blessing, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. Let's be dismissed with this. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.